0: in our workplaces, that we're to trust God with how things turn out, right? Absolutely, we should be prepared, but you can only share what you know. You're, you know, we, I'm not a Bible scholar, right? Maybe you don't have a master's of divinity and you feel like maybe I'm not adequately equipped to share theological ide- No, 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 no. Share what you know. Share what God has done for you in Christ Jesus in your life, Right? That's what you're called to do. And he ended last week with a pretty strong exhortation. And I actually caught him uh, at the end of his little uh, circuit that he goes on each week where he preaches Saturday night and then three times on Sunday morning. And I caught him after the last service up at March Street, and he was just exhausted. And he said, wow, that was a really hard sermon to preach. It was really heavy. And it's because he ended with an exhortation to confidently testify that God works in our lives in ways that we don't see. And he pushed us, and he challenged us to step out in faith and to share our testimony, to be witnesses for God, to actually fulfill the purpose for which God has saved you and put you on this earth. And he really, really challenged us to do that. And I want to keep us tethered to that application today as we look at this passage So I want us to keep that in mind uh, as our goal as we work through Acts 23. Because I have to admit that as I go through this series, I become deeply invested. It's funny because I look at my Bible, if I close it, and I can see all these greasy thumbprints on the pages of Acts. right? Because we've been there for, I don't know how many uh, sermon series we've been, or how many weeks we've been doing this. But that book of Acts is just, it stands out in my Bible because we've been there for so long. And I'm so deeply invested in this series. And I'm really moved by the person of Paul, by his life. I'm so inspired by Paul, his commitment to the call of God, his willingness to endure persecution. And I think what moves me most is his love for his Savior. And over and over, I find myself asking each week as we get further along into this series, is that how I'm supposed to live? Am I supposed to live that way? It seems a little intense sometimes when we come here on Saturday evenings or on Sunday mornings and you leave and it's like, that doesn't really seem practical. It doesn't seem possible with all that I have going on in my life. You know, we we have so much taking up time in our life and it's like whatever is left we kind of squeeze Jesus into that time that we have left you know instead of allowing him to encompass all of our life whether it be work or school or hobbies or right we just whatever time we have left that's where we fit Jesus in and that's all the time that we have for him and sometimes right that might just be on Sunday and depending on what's happening that Sunday it might only be two or three times a month that we actually have enough time to squeeze uh, Jesus into our busy schedules. And so it just seems like there's no way that God can really expect us to live the way that Paul lived. Maybe Paul had a unique call, and that radical commitment was only reserved for individuals like him. I also wonder as we kind of get further into this series together, actually nearing the end of the series, if my life would look different if I love Jesus the way that Paul loves Jesus. How much do you love your Savior? How much do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus the way that Paul loves him with all of his life so that? His whole goal and aim in his life is to glorify God and to make him known throughout the world. Paul wanted to take Jesus to Rome, right? He wanted to take Jesus throughout the entire known world at that time. But I can assure you, Paul was just a man. And we'll actually see that reflected in today's story. And on one side, I'm comforted to know that he was just a man, to know that he didn't do everything perfectly, and sometimes, as you'll see, he even allowed his temper to flare. But in another way, I'm somehow even more convicted by Paul. He didn't let his shortcomings prevent him from living a life of faith and obedience to the call of God. So many times we don't even consider stepping out in faith simply because we don't think something is within our wheelhouse or is within our giftedness. When if we're honest with ourselves, it's really because we don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to change. We don't want to do anything different from what we're currently doing. I like the way that my life is now. I'm comfortable with my level of commitment to Christ at this degree. I don't want to go any further than that. But if you would realize that even in your current condition, no matter where you're at, that you could step out in faith and trust God with your life, you can be confident, as we'll see today, that everything in your life will go according to plan. You believe that? Everything, if you live for God with your whole life, I promise you... Everything will go according to plan. Now, hang on with me, okay? Always keeping in mind that Acts is descriptive; it's describing, not prescriptive. We can look at the example of Paul from these passages and learn a lot from how he lived his faith. So, as we look through the book of, uh, um, as we look through Acts 23, I want to remind us of where we've been. To get us caught up to speed for where we're about to go. After Paul arrives in Jerusalem from a long missionary journey, several in fact, he meets with James and the elders of the church there in Jerusalem. The church has exploded. It's incredible what God has done. However, Paul has become a bit notorious among the Jews who came to faith in Christ and in. In order to avoid offending their conscience, he agrees to perform a purification ritual that would require him to go to the temple. You can read about this in Acts chapter 21. And once at the temple, a group of Jews create a conspiracy about his teaching in regards to Moses, that he was teaching uh, individuals outside of Jerusalem, Christians, Christians, Jewish people to no longer follow Moses. They created this conspiracy theory about Paul. They posted it on YouTube, and it went viral. We don't watch anything like that, do we? No, we don't do that, right? They created this conspiracy theory about Paul, which should show you the danger of conspiracy theories. You can see it happening here, and they made up this lie that Paul even brought Greeks with him into the temple which is a serious offense. You can read it, twenty-one, chapter 21, verse 28. If these conspiracies are true, it's pretty bad. It's not looking good for Paul. Paul could be punished and even killed for such crimes. And even though he didn't actually do these things, and there's no proof, right? Those conspiracies create enough of a commotion within the city that we are told they were seeking to kill him. Chapter 21, verse 31. But before they can accomplish their killing of Paul, a Roman tribune steps in and has him arrested, ultimately saving his life from the angry mob. Now, a tribune is a Roman official who is one rank above a centurion. And before the tribune removes removes Paul, he's given his his first opportunity to share the gospel. So he's arrested in the temple, Right? Saved by this Roman tribune. And before he's taken to the barracks, he asks if he can address those who are there in the temple. And here, he's given his first opportunity in Jerusalem to share the gospel with his brothers, with his kinsmen, with people who are like him. And it ends with shouting from the crowd, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Chapter 22, verse 22. Apparently, this interaction didn't go according to plan. The Roman tribune finally has Paul taken to the barracks for flogging, an examination to try and get something out of him to help this Roman tribune understand what's going on with this guy. Who is this guy that it would create a a riot like this that it would create such a huge issue. And here it's in this moment that we see the wisdom of Paul in revealing that he is, in fact, a Roman citizen and can't be flogged without a fair trial. We discussed this last week. Had the tribunal legally flogged Paul, the same punishment would have been carried out on him, or even worse, he could have been executed. Still, Wanting to get to the bottom of this mystery concerning this man, Paul, this tribune arranges a meeting with Paul and the Sanhedrin, with the high priest, with the council the next day that we read about in Acts chapter 22, verse 30. And here, at the end of chapter 22, we find that Paul has his second chance to share the gospel with the highest officials in Jerusalem, with the Supreme Court, of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. And here Paul takes his shot. And again, as we're, about, as we're about to see, it doesn't go according to plan. After Paul's first sentence, he says in chapter 23, verse 1 Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Bam. The high priest has Paul punched in the mouth, struck in the mouth. He gets one sentence out, right? Here's his next opportunity to share, to testify, to be a witness for God. And after getting out his first sentence, he gets struck in the mouth. Now, clearly, Paul was not saying that he's lived a perfect life without sin, After all, we know from Paul's testimony that he considers himself the chiefest of sinners. Instead, he's saying that according to what he knew of God, he always lived according to that knowledge. However, the high priest must have felt that this was somehow blasphemous, that this guy can't actually believe what he's saying because he wouldn't be doing the things that he's doing. And what Paul says next might shock you. I think it's one of the greatest moments that we get to see of Paul. He said in verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Unlike Jesus, who stood before this same Sanhedrin silently before his accusers, Paul responds quickly with a harsh rebuke. How would you respond if somebody decided to pop you in the mouth? Now let's be clear. What Paul said was not wrong. Like Jesus calling religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, whitewashed sepulchers, whitewashed tombs, right? You look good on the outside, but on the inside you reek of death. You are corrupt. Jesus did that. He called them that. Or Ezekiel calling the leaders of Israel whitewashed walls in Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 10, right? It's this weak wall that looks good on the outside, but it's fragile. There's no substance to it. So Paul was correct in his judgment. And beyond that, Paul, being a trained Pharisee, right? He's intelligent. He knows the Old Testament law. He knows the scriptures. Paul knew that it was unlawful to strike someone in this manner. There was actually a Jewish saying that goes, He who strikes the cheek of one Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. But apparently this high priest, Ananias, was above the law. It's actually interesting, it wouldn't be long after that this high priest would actually be assassinated. Before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, his own people would take him out because he was such a corrupt leader. God did, in fact, strike him down. However, in this situation, Paul is quickly corrected and told, would you revile God's high priest? To which Paul replies, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, some people actually speculate that Paul might have been sarcastic. And what he meant was that he didn't know that a high priest would act in such a way. But I don't think that's consistent with Paul's teaching. Consider what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verses one through two. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Tell me that that's not what Paul has in mind here, where he apologizes for blurting out the way that he did. You know, others actually believe that Paul's vision, because Paul actually would have known this high priest back before Acts chapter 9. Others believe that perhaps Paul's vision, which was impaired, prevented him from seeing who the high priest was, never mind the fact that Paul had been out of Jerusalem for 20 years. Have you ever seen a friend after 20 years and thought, they look completely different? Right? He didn't even recognize them. Maybe Paul, after being away for so long, couldn't identify the high priest since since he'd been away. In addition, the high priest wouldn't have been wearing his priestly attire because they weren't meeting where the Sanhedrin would typically meet. Whatever the case might be, it would seem as though Paul is genuinely apologizing for his outburst. For the purpose of preserving his witness and calling. How important is that? That we don't let our flesh get the better of us. In moments where we might be tempted when sharing our faith to become defensive. That we do our best to remain calm and collected under pressure. Because our great, greatest witness, right, is being like Christ. Christ not allowing our flesh to rise up to the surface and get the better of us. How many of us can say we could easily do that? I know there's been conversations that I've found myself in where I feel like I need to defend God. It's like God can do that on his own. He's God. It's just my responsibility to share and maintain and preserve my witness and calling before others. And so after regaining his composure... Paul is able to perceive that the council who is there is one part Sadducees and one part Pharisees. Quick history lesson. These two groups were two of the most influential. I think this would actually be pretty important for us to pay attention to. Just to maybe think that something in God's word might actually apply to our world today even in our own climate, cultural climate and context. Because these two groups were two of the most influential political parties in Jerusalem at that time. The Sadducees were more liberal and progressive in that they did not believe in the supernatural, nor did they believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees were conservative, trying to make sure that Israel followed all of the law so that they stayed within God's favor so that God would love their country. And both groups hated each other. Yet, the one bipartisan agreement they shared was their mutual hatred for Paul, which would tell you something about how the gospel interfaces with the kingdom of this world. The gospel offends Everyone. The gospel offends everyone, and as Matthew 21, verse 44 reveals, Jesus is a stumbling block to everyone. At some point, you've got to put up with Jesus, right? At some point, you've got to interact with and come to terms with, what do you believe about who Jesus is? Who is Jesus? And when you encounter Jesus, are you able to submit to his lordship before entering his kingdom, or are you tripped up by the person of Jesus? Are you crushed by the person of Jesus, and you can't go any further? And so the gospel, Jesus, at some point, offends everybody's flesh. When Paul realizes, though, that there are Pharisees there And considering how nothing so far would seem as though it's going to plan, he adjusts his tactics and he makes one more effort by saying in verse 6, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. That's an interesting fact about Paul. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. You know, some scholars actually suggest that Paul did this To cause division in the room among the Pharisees and the Sadducees to get the heat off of his back. And maybe they're right. However, it could be that he realizes he's running out of time. His opportunity is growing short. His window of opportunity is closing. So he gets right to the heart of the matter. He gets to the resurrection of Christ. Regardless of his intentions... Once again, the room erupts and it is divided among party lines to the point where it becomes violent. And finally, it says in verse 10 the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him to the barracks. Paul's final attempt to plead with his kinsmen, his brothers, is slipping through his fingers. This is his one shot. This is the last opportunity Paul is gonna have in Jerusalem to share the gospel. And at every turn, he's met with a closed door. At every turn, it would seem as though nothing is going according to plan. However, something incredible is about to happen. In the barracks that evening, we are told in verse 11, can I encourage you if you have your Bibles, highlight this verse. In verse 11 it says, The Lord stood by him. What more encouragement do you need? As you live on mission for the glory of God. I want to keep us tethered to that, right? Because there's plenty of places I can go to in Scripture ...to encourage you in your current circumstance. But your current circumstance that might plague you... ...or might cause you right now to feel stressed... ...whatever that might be... ...it might be distracting you from the fact... ...that God has given you a purpose... ...and caused you and called you to live on mission for God. But if you're living on mission for God... ...if you're sharing your faith with others... ...and you encounter difficult circumstances... If doors are closing in your face, if you're getting punched in the mouth, hopefully that's not happening. I hope that's not happening for you. But if you're, in, if you're encountering difficult circumstances, you can look to Paul in prison and be reminded that the Lord stood by him. Jesus, his Savior, was in the room. Does that get anybody else excited? It goes on to say, and he said, take courage. Now, why would those be the words that Jesus spoke to Paul? Why would he tell him to take courage? Maybe your translation says, be of good cheer. Why would Jesus need to tell Paul to cheer up? Because Paul was discouraged, just like you get discouraged. Paul felt as though he was a failure. Likely in the silence of his jail cell, without any distraction or comfort from his friends, he began to consider that he had failed. Maybe if he had just one more opportunity, he would have done things differently. Maybe he could even hear the voices of those others who have told him, don't go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, only chains await you. Maybe he got it wrong, and perhaps they were right. No, the Lord stood by him. I can guarantee you that in moments of sharing your faith with others, every time you walk away from the conversation, you're going to think to yourself, maybe I would have done that different. (laughs) Maybe I wouldn't have tried to say all the things that I said in that moment. I, I, I have a, an exact situation in mind myself where there was a young man who was coming to church and, and, and he had been an atheist and he was seeking the Lord and he was trying to get answers to his questions and I was doing everything I could to give him every answer that I had and thinking that I knew that I, what I was doing and I'm cringing as I think about it and, I had thought that God was doing something in his life where I just stepped in and asked him, do you want to put your faith in Jesus? We can do that right now. And I prayed with him, and I thought, man, I just led this kid to the Lord only for the next day to get a nasty email that said I forced my faith on him. And I was crushed. Oh, I was crushed thinking that I made this kid believe in God, as if I could do that anyway, right? We're all going to have moments like that, where you share your faith with a neighbor and you're thinking, I don't know if I would have said that, or maybe that didn't quite come out the right way, and you're going to be discouraged. That's part of this whole thing. But it's Paul who continues to push through that discouragement to live on mission for God, where we see God show up and that the Lord stood by him. And I love what Jesus says next. He says for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem so you must also testify in Rome. Not only does he stand by Paul through the night and tell him to take courage but he goes on to basically tell Paul good job. He stands Paul up if you will I'm just kind of this is me speaking now dusts off his shoulders and says get back out there. I've got more work for you to do. He reminds him of his purpose, and suddenly it's in this moment that we realize everything is going according to plan, that God was with Paul all along, that even when it seemed like the door was closing, that even when it seemed like Paul had failed, that even when it seemed like all hope was lost... God knew what he was doing. And it's at this point that you see a different Paul. You see a man on mission. However, he's not out of trouble just yet. Because as we're about to see in the following verses, a group of men are planning to assassinate Paul. This time, however, it's their plan that backfires. Because the son of Paul's sister... Yeah, you didn't know that Paul had a sister, did you? Perfect time to have a sister. Perfect time to have a nephew, right? Just so happens that he was in the room to overhear of this plan to ambush Paul. Paul quickly calls the centurion over, which is crazy. Could you see Paul sitting there reaching through the jail cell, snapping his fingers at a Roman saying, cent- Hey, come here, come here, i got to tell you something, right? Paul quickly calls over a centurion and he tells him to take his nephew to the tribune to share the intel that he's gathered. And it's at this point, right, that this tribune has got to be wondering, who in the world is this guy? I mean, from what we know of Paul, he's a pretty ugly dude, right? He can't see. He's got a unibrow. He's balding. He's a scrawny little guy, right? Right? Who is this guy? That, that all of these people, that he would cause all of Jerusalem to riot, that, that he would have an assassination attempt made on his life, and suddenly this tribune who initially wanted nothing to do with Paul is now determined to preserve his life. And after taking Paul's nephew aside and calming him down, he hears about a plot to take Paul's life And immediately he springs into action. Now watch this. In verse 23, he calls for two centurions. And he has them assemble 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen for a total of 470 men to escort Paul in the cover of darkness out of Jerusalem. What an entourage, right? Additionally, he provides mounts for Paul to travel the some 60 miles on horseback to Caesarea, which is a Gentile region. Now, from one perspective, sure, Paul is a prisoner. But from another perspective, perhaps from a kingdom perspective, it sure looks like Paul is an ambassador of God, doesn't it? Like he's on mission. And he's got protection to ensure that the message gets to where it needs to go. In Paul's own words, he actually says to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul looks at his chains as useful to the mission that God has called him to. In no way does he think that his chains... ...hinder his usefulness to God. On the contrary, he believes it's all part of God's plan. And in addition to sending Paul in protective custody to Caesarea... ...the Roman tribune writes the governor a letter. And it's here that we learn the tribune's name... ...Claudius Lysias. And this letter gets Paul access into Caesarea and into safety... In Herod's Praetorium. Of course, in this letter, he conveniently leaves out the details about where he almost flogged Paul. Wouldn't want to make sure, want to keep that kind of out of the details. But it was sufficient to grant Paul safety from his pursuers. And the scene ends with Felix, who would have been in the same role of Pontius Pilate during Jesus' day, saying to Paul, I will give you a hearing. When your accusers arrive. This is the last time that Paul's in Jerusalem his whole life. His whole goal, his whole aim in life before Christ was to be on the Sanhedrin. Even when he's saved, we actually read of Paul that he says of his own salvation that he would rather be accursed, right? That he would give up his own salvation for his brothers, for his kingdom, uh, his, his kinsmen, for his nation. That they would know Christ the way that he knows Christ. And yet this is the last time Paul will ever step foot in Jerusalem. And it's the last time that we read about Jerusalem in the book of Acts. No longer is Jerusalem in focus. Now our focus is on Rome which is where God has called Paul to go, the center of the world, the center of the known world at that time. It would be a few short years where Jerusalem would be destroyed and the temple would be destroyed and where Christianity would begin to be separated out from Judaism. And here, our attention is turned towards Rome, the most powerful city in the world. You know, in this narrative account, we're exposed to an important element of being a Christian determined to live on mission for God. We're exposed to God's providence. If you want to be a Christian who lives on mission for God, if you want to be a person who lives a life of purpose and value, who lives for something bigger than yourself, who lives for more than what you can create with your own hands and muster up in your own strength. If you want to be a Christian who lives out God's purpose for your life, we need to be his witnesses. We need to be testifying of who Jesus is and what he has done. And if you do that, I promise you, Like Paul, you will encounter God's providence in your life. We all know that God is sovereign, right? Which means he's in complete control. However, we always have to add words to understand it more properly. God is sovereign and good. God is sovereign and loving. Providence is a more focused understanding of his sovereignty, the word providence is built on the word provide. If you break it down, you'll see the word provide in there. John Piper says about God, the noun providence has come to mean the act of purposely providing for or sustaining and governing the world. God is governing our world, He is in control and He is providing for His church. And he is providing for his people who live on mission for his glory. As we read this account of Paul, we come face to face with a God who provides, a God who is actively involved in the lives of his children carrying out his mission. And I emphasize the last part because God cares about the details of your life. He does. God cares about the details of your life, but he hungers for you to take hold of the greater calling that he has for you. He's concerned about your job. He's concerned about your family. He's worried about, not worried, but he's concerned with who you marry and where you live. God cares about all of those things. He cares so much about that stuff That he says, if you stay focused on me and my kingdom, if you keep your eyes on the prize, if you keep Jesus the focus and the aim and the goal of your life, I'll take care of the rest. Stop worrying about yourself, stop worrying about what you'll eat, what you'll wear. Stop worrying about the promotion at work and being somebody amongst your peers. Stop worrying and caring so much about your life. It's distracting you from the higher calling that I have for you. If you would focus on the call I have for your life to make disciples of all nations to the ends of the earth, I'll take care of that stuff. I've got you covered. I'm God. I'm the God who provides. We so quickly become distracted by the things of this world, don't we? We're so in love with our life that living for God the way that Paul lived for God seems impractical and almost impossible. Trust me, I've been tempted to consider that, and I'm a pastor. But I believe that God has a higher calling for those who are willing to try and step out for him in faith. I promise you, if you take on the challenge to be a witness for God, there will be moments where it seems as though nothing is going right. But from another perspective, you can see the providence of God. And like Paul, he is standing by you, and everything is going according to plan. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you, God, for your word. God, I thank you for the example of Paul, who loved his Savior. God, I pray that we wouldn't look at Paul and think, man, I could never be like that. I could never live so radically for you. But God, rather, I I pray that like Paul, God, that we would love you more than we love our own lives, and that we would trust that you are a good father who provides. That as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of these things will be added unto us. That as we live on mission for the glory of God, you'll take care of the rest. God, I ask your blessing on your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.